Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx, and we are back with one of our regular topical podcasts. There's plenty to chew over as ever. We're going to divide it into a few different sections. We're going to talk about the Bank of England, the gilts markets, Andrew Bailey's comms disaster. That'll be our first section. Then we're going to move on to the generalised political chaos of the last few weeks, uh, spate of U-turns, the 45p tax rate, no-fault evictions, is a trade deal with India going to fall through? What is the government going to do to try and stabilise the economic position? And then finally, we're going to talk about the idea that the government should uh, promote a sort of British baby boom and how that interacts with migration targets and so on. So joining me to discuss those topics our deputy editor, Alice Denby, who I should say has slightly lost her voice, but welcome, Alice. Yeah, apologies, listeners. I sound a bit like Theresa May making that disastrous conference speech. Hopefully uh, it will go a bit better than that. We don't have a chancellor on hand with the cough suites, but we will do our best, Alice. And our guest this week from our own Centre for Policy Studies, our business researcher, Gerard Lyons. Gerard B. Lyons, I should say, to differentiate himself from the economist of the same name. Gerard, welcome. Great to be here. Right, so we'll kick off uh, with you, Gerard. We're going to talk about the, the, the gilt markets because the day that this podcast is released, we record on a Thursday, but Friday, the 14th of October, is when the Bank of England's intervention in the gilt markets so bought back, or it said it was prepared to buy back £65 billion, basically, of government debt. Um, that comes to an end. There's been a lot of very confusing signalling from the governor uh, this week. And I think it's reasonable to say this. It's a bit of a pattern from the leadership of the bank um, in since Andrew Bailey took over. We'll come on to that and the general question of independence. But, Gerald, I mean, what's, what's at stake here? And what are the potential ramifications? Where do you see things going over you know, the next few weeks, can these, can the market sort of stabilise or is it going to continue to be quite jumpy? What, what, what are your thoughts? I think you're right to highlight the immediate concern from the bank's point of view is its credibility. I think Andrew Bailey, the governor, has gambled by virtue of what he said regarding this will be the last time the bank intervenes. Um, as listeners will recall, there was this very bizarre situation where Andrew Bailey's comments in the States were on the front page of the FT. And then less than a few hours later, the front page had updated from bank insiders saying, no, don't worry, the bank will actually do more than end the facility on the Friday. 
But I think it's important to step back and look at this more broadly in the round and see how the mini budget relates to this before we get on to sort of next steps. So I think the main thing would be, let's actually go back to 2008 global financial crisis, where effectively in response to the uh, global financial crisis, interest rates went to record lows and therefore gilt yields went to record lows. Now, effectively, investment strategies therefore had to shift to find better returns. And this is where defined benefit schemes and LDIs come in. So one way this was done was through the LDIs, which are liability-driven investment funds. And for our purposes, the main thing to note is that they relied on a form of derivative which worked when interest rates were low. And so fast forward now to 2022, and we have an environment where we're exiting from cheap money. The Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, has been leading the curve, the most aggressive of raising rates and also reversing quantitative easing, i.e. printing money. The Bank of England has also been raising rates, but more slowly. And there has been a perception, I don't think it's unfair or controversial to say, the bank has sort of been seen as behind the curve, perhaps, in raising interest rates. And the day before the mini budgets, the mini budget was on a Friday. On the Thursday, the bank started quantitative tightening, which is the reversal of QE. Now, this is all technical, but it's useful backdrop ahead of the mini statement because the main point is that the markets were very in a very febrile state ahead of the mini budget. So the fact that the budget then sort of did stuff that wasn't expected and priced in perhaps was, as we've seen, an oversight to say the least. But to round off the gilt point, so gilt yields um, have been going up for months as it dawned on investors that the central banks, namely the Bank of England, the Fed were reversing QE and interest rates were rising in order to tackle inflation. But the big moment, of course, was the mini budget. And that was sort of the spark that had light up the whole the whole environment. Now, there's a debate to be had about whether or not, to, to continue this analogy, the pension funds have been pouring petrol on this for a period of time and it was waiting for that match to take light. And there are serious questions to be had about why was this not seen by regulators. And we have this ironic position actually now where the Bank of England in its commentary is noting that the FCA and other regulators have perhaps had an oversight. I think it'll be a bit of confusion when we find out who was running the FCA before <laughs> before they became governor of the Bank of England. But to round up this point and come into what you were saying, John, the fact is that these LDIs expect if there was a 1% shift in the gilt markets, that was seen as bad. The fact that post the budget, there were 4% moves meant the Bank of England had to act. So the Bank of England stepped in on the Friday with its 65 billion um, for the most effective government bonds. Interestingly, the auctions that it did were enormously undersubscribed. So it gave a sense the bank just you know, posturing towards moving was going to be more than enough. But to your point, it's only dawned recently that the bank had said this is going to end on Friday. And so the question when this podcast goes out is, does the bank actually have to continue to act? And then there'll be questions about Bailey's credibility in terms of leading the markets, or does his gamble pay off and he seemed to do well? I think the last point I would add is, the challenge the Bank of England see themselves is in is that they don't want to be accused of something called fiscal dominance, which in layman's terms basically means stepping in to clear up the government's mess and being seen as a supplicant for fiscal policy. And But I would argue, and I think some other you know friends of the show you've had on previously would argue, that the bank also has a financial stability mandate. And so it would be a bit bizarre for them not to intervene if financial stability was at risk in order to protect the notion that they weren't helping the government out. Sure. Thank you for that uh, overview, Joe. Very comprehensive. I mean, it is an extremely technical area, pensions. It's also one of those things that I think 
both in our day-to-day lives, a lot of people just go around not really thinking about them. So when they do kind of poke their head out, it feels a little bit more dramatic. I just want to get onto the more... There's a generalised sort of political point here to do with institutions and particularly the bank's independence. I mean, Alice, do you think it's fair to say the bank has has got away with errors in the kind of court of public opinion because the government has taken so many pelters? Sort of everything has been put on trust and quarting when really at least some of the blame lies with central bankers. And that's not to exculpate politicians, as Gerard says, if you don't throw a match on the fire. But the situation they find themselves in is not entirely of their own creation. Yeah, I think this is a problem with a lot of our sort of supposedly independent institutions is that ultimately, however independent the Bank of England might be, you know, it's still the government that's getting the blame for this market chaos. So there's kind of independence without accountability there. Yeah, I, I kind of, I somewhat agree. I think also during the leadership um, debates, and Gerard, perhaps you, you could talk a bit about this. I mean, Liz Trust said some fairly kind of vanilla stuff about the Bank of England's mandate, and it was framed as if she was on this sort of massive power grab. Whereas now she's in a position where she actually might be within a right to try and sort of impose a bit, uh, impose her own views on interest rates and so on. Um, but it, it's politically almost impossible for her to do that. Yeah, I th- there's a few things to unpick here. I think for too long, Westminster hasn't actually had enough scrutiny of what happened at Threadneedle Street and more broadly independent institutions. And I agree with Alice that often the independence of institutions has meant that accountability has been sort of shunted. I think if you take what Truss had said during the leadership campaign, she didn't actually say anything too controversial. She never said the Bank of England's independence was at threat. And she postured to reviewing the mandate or quite clearly said she reviewed the mandate. That's commonplace in some countries. Take Canada, for example. So those things in and of itself weren't the issue. But I think the notion that a politician was speaking about the bank and willing to lay some blame at the bank for inflation persisting in the UK. Let's remember the Bank of England said that inflation um, was transitory when it clearly hasn't been. And that's not to say central banks can't make mistakes, but the whole point of independence needs to have the appropriate quid pro quo when it comes to scrutiny. The other point I would make to this is that the irony of trustonomics has been the institutions who supposedly wanted to really change the orthodoxy, so to speak, the Treasury and the Bank of England. She's now actually emboldened by virtue of overstepping the mark with a mini budget. And she's sort of relinquished any capital she had that some people felt was valid to maybe reform these institutions in some ways. <laughs> so how much do you think the kind of chaos we're seeing in the markets is a result of underlying factors? I mean, you talked about things going back to the financial crash. And how much of it is the poor political decision making? What's interesting about the mini-budget was 89% of the measures excluding the energy levy were reversing two tax increases, namely national insurance and corporation tax. And the energy levy had been sort of mooted quite consistently on the campaign along with those other two tax changes. And there's a sense, I think, that if they had just stuck to those things that had been priced in during the campaign, then they may have got away with it. And there was also a sense that if they then... if they you know, position saying that any future changes will be in a future budget 
were the appropriate costings and there'll be governmental department spending reviews, et cetera, then it would appease the markets. But by throwing in these additional tax cuts, not having the OBR and the Chancellor then doubling down on the weekend following the mini budget, it gave this perception that they sort of wholeheartedly believed in the Laffer curve. They wholeheartedly believed that tax cuts lead to growth and there wasn't any fiscal prudence in the slightest. And I, I think that was the final straw that broke the back. Of course, to bring it into the Bank of England point, there is a, you know, globally, interest rates are rising. The fit markets were very febrile. The Bank of England didn't raise rates as much on the Wednesday, so on the Thursday before the mini budget as the Federal Reserve did on the Wednesday. So all those factors clearly had a part. But this notion that the government keep going out there on the media round and saying that it had nothing to do with them isn't really credible and perhaps is causing more damage. Yeah, I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg sort of questioned the BBC's impartiality. I don't think it's really a question of impartiality so much as sort of journalists tending to take the sort of simplest, the easiest route from A to B, sometimes with, with stories like this, like government does announcement, markets go down, is a really easy story for you to tell on the 10 o'clock news. And it's not like, it's not because they like love Labour or hate the Tories so much. It's just an easy way to dramatise something without getting into the kind of long-winded technical stuff. I agree. Where I would say perhaps there is an element of cashing in on the government's mistake is when it comes to the conversations being had about these institutions. I watched the Treasury Circle Act Committee evidence the other day, which, you know, that speaks volumes about how fun I am. <laughs> but they had a host of economists reviewing the mini budget. And one of the one of the respected economists said that kamikaze, no, he said, sorry, guerrilla, not kamikaze, guerrilla tactics had been at part for the mini budget's subsequent market reaction. And he was referring to the discussion around these institutions. And I felt that was particularly unfair because it's a we need to be able to have hold these institutions to account. We need to be able to have grown-up conversations given how much of an impact they have in our lives. And we can't have it both ways whereby we're upset when politicians don't talk about what's going on, let's say, in Threadneedle Street. But when they do, people say, oh, no, they shouldn't be talking about it. They're attacking the integrity of the institution. Yeah, it's not just the UK either. I think institutions and kind of prize givers and all this stuff have a tendency to scratch each other's backs. Um, I mean, Ben Bernanke, who was the head of the Federal Reserve, won the Nobel Prize for economics. And I, I don't really pass any particular comment on that award. He's obviously an extremely, uh, you know, able and accomplished economist. But when it came out, I remember seeing lots of people being like, wait a minute, this guy caused the financial crisis or he exacerbated it and he's getting a, a sort of slap on the back. So it, it definitely sort of feeds into that perception that they're sort of, like you say, outside of the, the normal range of democratic control. Yeah, I think there is an element to make it on the UK perspective of former members of the Bank of England or those who very much see themselves of you know that ilk and sort of the institution having worked in the Treasury, which is sort of very a close relation to the bank, of wanting to come out and defend its integrity and highlight that, you know, it is a good institution. And like those are all valid points. But sometimes where that, you know, analysis weakens is by failing to recognise that at a macro level economic policy isn't just dictated by the government. Is there not a, a wider point that the Bank of England has massively expanded its remit over recent years? I mean, that you know, it gets involved in issues like climate change and so on, which really are not its job. Does that kind of undermine its credibility? I'm not sure in that sense that it undermines its credibility. I think 
there are views in the city that perhaps the the bank shouldn't be taking such an active stance on the green financing and climate change. I'm of the view that that has been one of the successes of the bank. I think the biggest issue with the Bank of England, and also this is an issue that's applied globally, is this addiction to cheap money. Um, and Lord King, in one of the reports at the House of Lords Economics Committee, the former governor, we should say. Yeah, yeah. The former governor did a pretty scathing report along with Lord Forsyth, where they basically said this sort of addiction to QE has really distorted the ability for financial markets to price for risk. There's also then been a whole host of knock-on effects. If you take asset price inflation with houses, for example, this addiction to QE has fed that issue. Um, so I think what we're witnessing, and sadly the UK is in danger of becoming the poster child for the movement away from cheap money. And I think the Bank of England does have some, um, you know, has to front up to the fact that it's addiction to treat money, the fact that it's been the shock absorber always for the UK economy has had a lot of effects. And of course, that to John's point, that doesn't mean we can't lay blame squarely at the chances jaw for spooking the markets on his mini budgets. But it's important to see that these aren't, you know, there's a backdrop in which all these events are happening and some of these things have been going on for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it might be that the mini budget is sort of maybe not in the UK, but globally, a kind of footnote to a much bigger story of this unwinding of a long, low interest rate story. If you haven't listened to it, by the way, a couple, a few episodes ago, I did interview Edward Chancellor, who's just written a book about interest rates, including long sections on the ills of long, low interest rates, which I thoroughly recommend having listened to. Anyway, this segues quite neatly into our second section, which is tightly linked to what we've been talking about, which is, I mean, the generalised kind of political chaos. The papers are awash with briefings from Tory MPs and cabinet sources. And I mean, some of this is even being done in public. We have the, the kind of direction of policy in a whole range of areas seems to be a bit all over the place. I think the question I want to ask, though, is, does it actually matter that much if the government does decide to U-turn on various things? If so, how much does it matter? And what things might the government change course on to steady things? Because at the moment, it all just feels very frenetic, chaotic. And, and I think that's one of the things that's causing... It's not just the competence question, but it's the sense of disorder that is causing the Tories so much damage um, in the public's eye. Well, I think the problem that Liz Truss has is that she's very much um, staked out a, a sort of, a, you know, a strong ideological position for herself from which it's very difficult to backtrack. I think you can you can you turn if you if you can say I've listened, I've learnt, the circumstances have changed, but you can't you turn on your whole philosophy, um, and you can't. And, and, and if you're U-turning because your backbenchers in an 80-seat majority parliament have forced you to do so, that makes you look incredibly weak. So I don't think she can resile from the biggest measures in the budget, uh, and nor should she really from, from things like not raising corporation tax or from the energy price cap. Um, but it's very difficult to see where she goes from here because it's clear that her kind of free market libertarian pitch has not proved popular. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. 
You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah, I think one, uh, one of the, well, I listed a few of the U-turns. We've had ones on... Sort of, we have ones that aren't even really U-turns, where the government kind of kite flies about possibly changing something. You'll see reports appear in the papers, and then they actually say, "Oh no, that's not happening." So yesterday, for example, Liz Truss said, um, "We are, we are going to go ahead with banning no-fault evictions or Section Twenty-One notices." Um, much to the relief of uh, lots of campaigners and MPs and so on. I think most reasonable people think that. Chucking tenants out without any kind of recourse is probably not a, gr a great thing, particularly when your rental market is as dysfunctional as ours. Um, but the other thing was uh, there was this big argument about whether or not the government should have some kind of energy sort of energy saving campaign. And it seems to be, the argument seems to be on the one hand that oh it's a bit patronising and condescending. And this is where Alice and I somewhat disagree we on disagree this. Disagree on this, yeah. But um, I think if you are if you are stoking if you are kind of dulling the price signal in the way that they are with this with the price freeze, then it makes then it makes sense to have some kind of comms. And I think this is what Jacob Rees-Mogg has come out with now uh, on on ways that people can reduce their um, their their use. Uh, of energy but anyway the point being that they, they they sort of flew the kite on that and then today they're announcing oh we are going to go ahead with it it just confuses people you don't know what what's actually the direction of policy is i think you're completely right if there's a perception that policy is sort of done on the hoof then having a having an approach whereby you leak it to the press to sort of indicate try and get sentiment reaction therefore then do policy even if you end up in the right place as they have with the rent controls and it looks like in the right place of doing in my opinion an advertising campaign you don't get much of the credit for actually doing it you just look like you're a bit slapdash and you're not really thinking things through to build on alice's point the danger they now have is that a lot of the exciting bits from the cps point of view of the mini budget were the supply side measures yeah. particularly around planning 
And those do have a real ability to impact growth and make the UK more competitive and try and get some of the way of reaching. In the longer term, I would say. Yeah, yeah. well, supply side reforms take a while to go through, but nonetheless, welcome measures that will need to be done if you want to try and increase the growth rate in the UK. But the fact that she's had to U-turn already, the fact that backbenchers are ennobled, the fact she's got discontent already and an inability to have discipline in her own cabinet means that how is she going to get these welcome measures through the Houses of Parliament, then you're going to be in this position whereby they're going to potentially have to reverse on some of the tax increases because the OBR demand it and therefore the financial markets demand it. And then the other supply side stuff isn't going to get through. And then you sort of have this sitting lame duck period of economic policy. Can I just come in on the uh, advertising campaign? Because I do, <laughs> I do disagree with the kind of free market argument about the price signal. People's bills have gone up, so they will recognise that and adapt to their energy use anyway. And it's not as though this information about how to reduce your energy use is difficult to find. And I think this is reminiscent of campaigns they had about water use in the 70s, which recommended you shower with a friend. I think this stuff is patronising and embarrassing. Jesus um, yeah, I'm not. we are not advocating <laughs> showering with friends um, on the podcast. Uh-huh. But, but as well as being nannying, I think, you know, one thing that I liked about Liz Truss was that she said that she wouldn't do this because, it, you know, it didn't sit well with her ideology. And now she's U-turning on this. I mean, there's no clarity of thought here. Um, and there's no kind of guiding principle. So you think free market ideas are difficult to sell, right? And even harder if you won't stick to them yourself. She seems to not believe in them herself. Um, I think I completely understand those points. I think there is some validity to them. But I think the situation is so exceptional that even with the subsidy, the price signal is still so far off the actual cost of energy that I don't think sort of higher using households especially really understand the scale that we ought to be economizing. So the cost of energy is five or six times what people are going to be seeing or what it would be, what it was last year rather. If your bills double that, that implies, you know, sort of very substantial sort of 30, 40% reductions. And everything that you're not reducing is basically punting the bill on down to future taxpayers. So someone will end up paying for it eventually. I think, I mean, really the problem here is the policy itself, which is a kind of open-ended bet on the price of energy. Um, But within the confines of what I think consider a very suboptimal policy, I think spending 15 million quid, which is a drop in the fiscal ocean on reducing demand is not an unreasonable use of public money. The other thing is, the point, like silly advice, like, you know, don't leave your oven running for eight hours in a row or whatever. Don't put the boiler up is, is, does seem obvious. But some of the things are not that obvious. Some of the energy saving things, like if you turn down your thermostat by one degree, it will save you 10% on your electricity bill. That is not intuitive, right? Mm. There's lots of not non-intuitive, non-commonsensical stuff. I think one yeah. way or another, an advertising campaign isn't going to make a huge amount of difference, is it? It's what it says about, as I say, the ideological direction, the principles that are guiding this government just don't seem to be there. I think that's, a, yeah, the political point is is probably the wrong one. But so, Gerard, what do you think then? If Given that we have this clamour to kind of stabilise things, to set out uh, the, the government's economic stall, we have the statement, whoever chose to put it on Halloween, <laughs> like, it's beyond so me. Because it is it literally, I, I used to work on a kind of politics news site and I... It is, like you say, exactly. It's a headline writer's dream. And, 
yeah, any other day than Halloween. <laughs> but we have this in sort of two weeks' time. I mean, are there things that you think they could junk and it wouldn't have that big an effect? I'm thinking particularly of, we've already got rid of that additional rate, the 45p rate. I think they could go back on the basic rate and I don't think it would change the overall prospectus. I don't think it would have a massive impact on growth forecasts or anything like that. And it would signal us to the markets that they're taking things seriously. Yes, I, I do agree. I think the big challenge politically and economically for them is making sure that that statement is well received. Because if it isn't, I think it's very hard to see them both, Quasi and uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss, being able to stay in office after that point. In terms of measures, I agree with you about the income tax would be the more appropriate one to change. It was, just, it was another surprise one. We talk a lot about the top rate, but no one was expecting... The 1p cut in the basic rate. It was bringing forward what Rishi Sunak had already outlined, but nonetheless, I think that... Seven years down the line. But, like I, that, yeah. but I would agree. I think the di- it's also it's a demand-stimulating um, demand tax cut, which while the UK isn't suffering from an overheating domestic economy, i.e. people going out there and spending money like there's no tomorrow, there is an argument you said that in an inflationary environment, perhaps we shouldn't be doing demand-side tax cuts. And if you did, let's say, which has been mooted in the press... That they decided to rate, they decided to let corporation tax rise and then cut it again in a few years. Um, that would bring that would bring in some cash. The danger though is that corporation tax is a supply side measure, and if you know Truss's whole mantra has been about trying to increase investment, that it seems bizarre to then again to Alice's point, it was such a key part of her campaign that if you row back on that, you've lost all credibility. The energy issues difficult because while instinctively I think you want a more targeted system as Carl Williams one of my fellow researchers has pointed out in some notes the plumbing of government does make it very difficult to do these the, uh, Rob Colville's database state mm. quite well, exactly and like I think this often is a point that's missed when you know Sunak got stick for this when he was chancellor for his 400 pound um, intervention which every household got even if you had a second home but uh the point he made, which is a valid one, which is the plumbing of government doesn't allow me to do more targeted measures. And so I think the gov- what, if I was, well, I imagine Quasi and his team will be hoping that the OBR forecasts give them as much wiggle room as they can. But it's very unlikely that that's going to be the case. And therefore, then you have to look at reversing some of the tax um, tax changes he announced in the mini budget. I think what's very frustrating is, um, as we are saying, this energy price intervention is massive it's bigger than furlough and yet they're getting no credit for it at all i'm thinking about rishi sunak the way that he um presented and uh rolled out furlough i think people really appreciated i think they really felt like this was a government that was on their side that was going to help them through difficult times and i think he did get credit for that and you know during the pandemic he was extremely popular and yet this government is doing way more for way more people and getting zero credit for it because of all the other rubbish it's doing at the same time. I, I think there's another reason they're not getting any credit for it, which comes back to, I'm gonna give a, I'll give a shout out to uh, the American pollster, Frank Luntz, who's done some work for us here at the CPS. And one of his kind of buzz phrases for politicians is, it's not what you give, it's what they get. So when, you were, when we had the furlough scheme, it was, right, here's a load of money going into my bank account that I wouldn't otherwise have. People think wicked. But with the energy price freeze, all you're getting is a higher bill than you had last year, but a less high one than in a hypothetical universe. 
So you're not really kind of feeling particularly grateful or thankful. You're still like, well, this is frankly a bit of a shit situation, but this intervention's made it a bit better. You, it, it doesn't have the tangibility of the furlough scheme. The £400 thing, though, does, because it's just literally 66 quid off your bill for, what, six months or something. Mm. And everyone can see that. You get a, I got an email from my energy company being like, here's your government discount. But the communication of that policy was so bad, I think possibly because it precedes this government, like it's a Rishi Sunak measure, that they've made, like you say, they've made no political capital off it um, whatsoever. I think also there's just... To use that famous quote, events, dear boy, events. Mm. Oh, no. I'm sorry. You put my bingo card of cliche. <laughs> when they're announcing the energy policy, it's in the Commons when a note's been passed around that um, Queen Elizabeth II, mm. um, his health is deteriorating. Yeah, and then that's true. I think that can't be understated, the blanket news coverage also, um, the fact that everyone is doing it, like every country in Europe yeah. is doing it. So it's like you're not doing anything special. Well, ours is like, the most most generous. I say ours, the government's is the <laughs> most generous approach. Yeah. Um, I think perhaps they could have reaped the dividend from that if they'd not had the complete fallout from the mini budget, because then they'd actually have a coherent sort of script that they could say and people would believe it. It was. The script would have been, you know, we're reversing the national insurance tax increase, which is what Labour also wants to do. That's a tax on jobs, businesses, everyone would clap hands, blah, blah. We'd say we're cancelling a planned increase, a planned increase in corporation tax going into a global downturn. You know, the CBI, everyone would have been like, we really welcome that. And so there is a parallel universe, and I don't just say this optimistically, where the trust government is in a lot more stable footing because they've stuck to what was just announced on the campaign. They're able to beat the drum saying, we're backing business, we're backing workers, and we've done this significant intervention in the energy market, which everyone will benefit from. And then she could also, then all the characteristics that we have of her about her being wooden would be corroborated in terms of she's strong, she's diligent, she gets on with the job. But here we are. (laughs) Yeah, I think my final little um, point on that is that Similar to my previous one, really. But people, I think a lot of people just don't really understand the energy price cap to start off with. So it's quite difficult to then communicate changes to it. Plus the fact that um, this trust went on the radio and seemed to imply that it was actually a limit on bills, mm. which yeah. made things even worse. That was just a plain kind of foul up in kinds of communication. There's no kind of, sh- there's no sandpapering that. You can't go out there and say your policy wrong mm. um, in that way. Anyway. So I don't think, I think these are all sort of loose ends that we will we'll see if the government can somehow tie some of them off. Um, I think it is almost, it, the word sort of political Jenga, I think was used to, um, to describe it. And uh, that's how it feels. You kind of push one bit in or out and then the whole, th- the whole edifice looks like it could topple. I think the party itself is in a kind of fascinating state, isn't it? I mean, they're already talking about whether they can oust Liz Truss and get a new leader. I think this... You know, is there something about this particular cohort of MPs? They've been forged in the fires of Brexit with Parliament being prorogued and what have you. Is there something about this cohort of MPs that makes them particularly, you know, regicidal? Um, Or is it the government's fault? I think it's a product of, if you look at, say, the 90s, which admittedly I was about nine at the time, but when you're doing badly in the polls, it's, there's a sort of every man or woman for themselves mm. vibe where everyone's just looking at their own seat. Some of them are probably looking to life beyond politics, frankly. 
Um, and there's just a sort of generalized air of doom and that leads to some quite um, strange behavior. Anyway, I want to get on to our, our sort of third section, which is, again, we can link this somewhat. It's about uh, a piece Alice wrote this week. It was about a so-called British baby boom uh, headlined in the sun on Sunday's bonk for Britain, which I thought was quite funny. Um, and it's about the idea basically of some kind of tax credit or tax cut to encourage more babies, essentially. Um, this is a very kind of provocative issue for some people. We saw a very eminent geneticist called Adam Rutherford go on Twitter and, and genuinely compare this idea to Nazi-style eugenics, which kicked off this whole kind of big row. I mean, it's plainly preposterous. Um, but I think, Alice, the point really is that kind of tinkering with the tax system is, is not going to change the, the fundamental reasons that we have a low birth rate, that we've basically needed immigration to top up our population over the last 20 odd years. Yeah, I think what I'm keen to stress is that women choosing to have fewer children is a sign of tremendous progress. It's a, a consequence of the fact that women now have so many more choices in life than to just be a mother. Um, and it, in in many ways, if you look, you know, this, uh, declining birth rates are a feature of every developed economy. At some point, you have to say that look, this is a revealed preference for women to have fewer children, and uh, and that's why I'm kind of sceptical that this is something that's even remotely amenable to policy changes. Least of all, a tax break. Nobody is thinking about HMRC when they're trying for a baby. Um, <laughs> Unless you're really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of our listeners. <laughs> yeah. um, but I suppose. <laughs> One thing that, that I would say and what I argued in my piece was that there are aspects of public life in Britain that are inimical to families. Things like the two-child benefit count. What kind of signal does that send? Um, if you want people to be having babies and yet at the same time you're saying there's a hard limit um, on, on the number that, that, that the state is prepared to support. Um, and perhaps we can get into some of the other like supply-side measures, type measures that, that we might um, support to... Uh, uh, get Brits bonking. Um, uh, I mean, housing is the obvious one. I think, as I said in my in my piece, if if we want to uh, get Brits making babies, like making sure they have affordable bedrooms in which to do it, would be a good start. But I suppose my overall point is that I, I'm slightly suspicious of this idea that we should be trying to prod women into having more babies yeah. when, in fact, <clears throat> it's a perfectly reasonable choice to have no or fewer children. Yeah, I think there's something... I, I understand entirely why people find it unsettling that the government might involve itself in what is an extremely personal um, personal decision. I, my sort of two senses, I completely agree with pretty much everything you've said about the reason people don't have kids. Uh, but it's. I think what we have is a kind of perfect storm of two things. One is that element of choice you describe. And two is the fact that people getting married and settling down has just got a lot later, in part because I think of the element of choice. People just take longer to get married and decide they've met the right person. But also because of the kind of economic forces. I mean, so many people in their 30s are living at home, are renting. They don't have the means to start... A family, so I mean, I don't think a tax break's gonna is like a terrible idea. It's basically the same as child benefit, just in a different form. Um, but like you say, I mean, what do you think, Gerard? You're you're for the age where you might start at some point thinking about <laughs> having a child. What's going through your mind? See the look of panic in Gerard's yep, eyes. Gerard's starting to look very scared. <laughs> Excitement, I think. Um, 
I uh, wholeheartedly agree with Alice that I sort of feel this, this is a policy, even though it has its merits as a policy, it's because there aren't coherent other big policies being delivered that actually will make a difference. Yeah. I, sort of, I sort of wonder if it's one of those things where, you know, you'll welcome it if you're going to have a kid anyway, but would it move the dial if you're sort of flirting with the idea of having a, a second child? Um, I found Alice's piece really, really insightful. In addition to the um, CPS panel that we hosted at conference on families, which was the reason for mentioning that was we had such a good turnout for that panel. And it was because it was the only panel that I can remember in conference recent history that focused on the role of the family in public policy. And this isn't an area that I'm you know, well versed in, but there does seem to be a vacuum about how does the family fit into the policies that we are doing and that sort of spearheading of ideas. Yeah, I think um, there's a sort of cultural element as well where it's no longer seen as, uh, you know, a particularly bad thing to just not have kids or not want to have kids. Um, obviously, there's always like sort of an element of that, but uh, or to just have one kid, like it's completely normal. And you sort of people kind of copy what people of their peer group do to a degree as well. So it's sort of an element of that. I wanted um, this question of kind of natalism. Uh, as I said, it's very kind of provocative and it. It relates closely to population and immigration. We've had a big kind of hoo-ha this week about, particularly about immigration from India, because the Home Secretary made some comments about Indians overstaying their visas um, and stats apparently showing that they are more likely to overstay their visas than people from, say, Australia and New Zealand. The Indian government took umbrage at that for obvious reasons. We then had people on sort of social media saying that well, the government's out of its mind because it, its trade deal with India implies that we would have free movement with a country of a billion people. Um, it's a very kind of frenetic um, topic. It is just worth saying, though, that, that even if we did have a trade deal with India, it would not be... The phrase free movement obviously applied to the European Union and it was any EU citizen could come go to any other EU state... That is not on the table in a trade deal with India. It would be a time-limited, age-specific visa with a quota. So I think at the moment, the quota for the visa we're talking about, which is a Tier 5 visa, is 3,000. Mm. So we're talking about very small numbers. I mean, where, I mean do we, where is the government on immigration? I mean, Gerald, you, you do sort of business research. It's quite closely linked to this. There are lots of areas of the economy that, frankly, need more workers. How do we... How do we slice this Gordian knot? Yeah, I think there's two, in broad terms, two different sort of parts of the Tory party. There's there's a part of the Tory party, as we saw a lot in the Brexit campaign, that saw unlimited migration from the EU as being a reason that low wages didn't rise and why businesses didn't invest in workforces and fed into the productivity problem. Um and you remember Boris Johnson's inflammatory comment towards business that you've been drunk, drunk on cheap labour. And I think that argument does have some merits. I think it's when you have a surplus of workers, then there is not an incentive to invest in the workforce. The flip side to that, however, is as we're noticing with certain sectors post-Brexit, is that they can't find the workforce. You know, whether that's picking fruit in, in fields or whether it's 
in social care certain roles so some people have argued i noticed karen billamore the former cbi president argued that this will be like a monetary policy committee equivalent for migration where they sort of outline which sectors sort of need workers and there's a part of the sort of the break. We have that, don't we, with the shortage occupation list? I, the argument would be that this needs to be bolstered and given more credence. But that's where the Brexit sort of vote, there were two different strands. There was the sheer numbers point about there's too many people coming. And then there was also the more sort of, sort of liberal Brexit point about it's about having the controls and being able to have a bespoke points-based um, immigration system. But coming back to your question, you sort of have the Liz Trust view, which is, immigration might be a good way to get growth up quickly for these certain sectors. But you also have the other view by Swella Bravman and others that we've had years of unlimited migration and it hasn't actually helped growth that much. The issues about paying people and investing in people and investing in the UK. Um, the, another, this is another area that the government really doesn't get a huge amount of credit. In a, to, to plug a piece of work that I did with some of my colleagues, Why Choose Britain, where we asked you know hundreds of investor CEOs available on the CPS website. <laughs> <laughs> um, we asked them, you know, what you know, you know, highlight some good policy areas. Often the high skilled migration uh, visas were often venerated as being like best in class. Whether that's the scale up visa, whether it's the visa that you haven't even got to have a job, but if you're you know, very capable and from a certain type of university, you're welcome. So there's parts of this debate that they are getting right. But to Alice's earlier point about what is the sort of cogent thought within the Tory party, there are clearly very different strands. Yeah, I think there's a tendency, as with most topics really in, in politics and, you know, we have a sort of slogan heavy approach to politics in in this country that you're either a sort of I love immigration person or I'm against it and want to keep the numbers down when really actually and we had a piece by Sunder Katwala who runs a think tank called British Future the reality is that voters are actually quite nuanced in their views they don't think immigration per se is good or bad and even the word encompasses so many different things that I think we need to be clear about which type of immigration we're talking about I think, I mean, obviously, um, the biggest and most troubling form of immigration is the small boats. Um, yeah. That's a, a, a rightly very concerning to people. It's a kind of moral affront that people are, are dying in the channel. Um, and whether or not you think that the Rwanda policy is, is the right one, reasonable disagreements about that, doing nothing is in itself... Uh, a, a, a decision with dreadful consequences. Yeah, I agree. I think that the boats thing is, it's not so much the raw numbers of people because there's a total percentage of incoming people. It's not that high. It's the sense, A, of just wanton criminality and like you say, that lack of control. It's there. a horrifying spectacle as well, isn't it? You know, when, when people are dying on our shores. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's my. Um, the other thing I find sort of odd is that sort of, and I I would say as anyone who's listened to this or read my my stuff on immigration, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty pro as uh, as it goes, but I find the assumption that everyone arriving in the boat is definitely a refugee, which you seem to see in some corners of this debate, quite strange. I mean, a lot of people, judging by one of the recent surveys, are coming from Albania, which 
it's definitely not like the nicest country in Europe to live in, but it's not in the throes of a civil war or anything either. So I, I'd struggle to see how someone arriving here illegally from Albania would be classified as a refugee. So I think we need some sort of clarity on both sides and not to kind of indulge in sort of simplistic sort of name-cally approach to things. I think the we do seem to have quite a binary debate in terms of immigration, in terms of how the opposition label the Tories, which is, oh, you know, you just want to, you think immigration's bad, blah, 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 immigration's great. When in fact, in terms of policy, at least, the Tory stance has been much more nuanced than that. Yeah, there's another thing. I mean, when I said we're talking about different types of thing, there's obviously things like student visas. Should students be able to bring their families over? I'm not sure they necessarily should, but other people might have a different view on that. Uh, seasonal work as well. I think this is the big thing that, that Liz Trust wanted to do was basically extend visas for jobs like um, fruit picking, which we had loads of problems with. If you guys remember during the last, you know, over the last couple of years, the amount of headlines we've had about kind of food rotting in fields, which now seems to have just disappeared. But I don't think if you ask the average punter what they think about offering someone a visa to come here for, for a few months, do some harvesting, and then go off to the next country, which is how this tends to work, I don't think people would have any particular objection to that. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think it's borne out in polling. I think also those headlines are often met by commentators going, oh, you know, this shows Brexit's terrible. And it's like, well, you know, if you look at what the vote leave said, at least, it's very much in keeping the notion to have a sort of, as I say, bespoke you know, points-based regulatory system that you change for the needs of the economy. I think the biggest fault line is that um, the left broadly think that unlimited migration is only a good thing and don't recognise that the, the downsides to it, as referred to investment, et cetera, et cetera. And also when it comes to the, the, those travelling on boats across the channel, often I sort of feel that parts of the left, sort of without saying it, are advocates of almost an open doors policy. Um, and it's very hard to have these conversations on the right and highlight well, someone's come from Albania, let's say that's not a war-torn place, without being sort of put in a bucket with a bunch of sort of xenophobes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm not a big fan, again, as anyone who's listened to this or read my own pieces, I'm not a huge fan of the Rwanda policy in the sense that I think it's incredibly long-winded and bureaucratic and expensive and it won't actually do that much to solve the problem. But that doesn't mean I don't want to do anything. Um I think we could do a lot more in terms of just law enforcement. Frankly, the French government could do a lot more to stop people launching off their shores coming here, which they seem to have been oddly kind of slack on. Mm. But it, it does, like you say, it falls into you're a Rwanda person or you're not. You either want to clamp down or you don't. You're a soft touch or an open door um, or yeah. whatever. Um, what was amazing around the whole Rwanda thing was... It seemed used, if you hated the Tories already, you used this as further corroboration that they were evil people. And it didn't include the fact that, you know, this analysis rarely included the fact that Denmark, you know, a very sort of socially liberal country with a sort of STB type government has gone for a similar policy. The fact that the UN has used Rwanda as well. And that's not to say there aren't criticism of the policies and that you can't be critical of it. But that, that acknowledgement or nuance seemed to be missing from the debate somewhat about you know, the government aren't just doing this because they're evil or whatnot. It's because they've tried to exhaust other options that haven't worked out. Yeah, I think there was a sort of view as well that it was pure headline chasing when actually quite a lot of work had 
again, like I said, I'm not a big fan of the policy, but there, it was obvious that they had put work into it. It wasn't, it wasn't just come out onto a, a sort of fag packet. Uh, anyway, it's been an extremely enlightening conversation. Gerard, thank you very much for joining us and walking us through the gilt markets particularly, um, which I have to admit is not my area of expertise, though I have been frantically checking my own uh, piddling little pension pots this week just to make sense. Uh, Alice, thank you for battling through despite having a very sore throat. And please do read Alice's piece about uh, tax credits and the natalism problem in the UK. It's very good indeed. And thank you as ever for listening. Do tune in next week when I'm going to be interviewing Volodymyr Zelensky's former spokeswoman, Yulia Mendel, about her new book on the Ukraine's fight against the Russian invaders. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.